too. Um, and this one is not a hoodie. It's just perfectly comfortable for tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm smiling. I'm very happy. I'm sure I'll still perspire eventually, but I'm, I'm very, very comfortable right now. Um, I am, this, this is the last talk, so I need to say thank you. Um, it's amazing to be with you all. It's amazing uh, to be held by you, um, to be prayed for by you, to be heard and seen. Um, you are outstanding. Uh, you are fabulous, and you are definitely worthy of some good marveling. Um, in a word, you're marvelous. And I got a song. Got a song. Um, uh, my daughter's a cappella group uses this as a warm-up. They sent a clip of it to her when she had to, when she left school to take some time off to be with us when my wife was sick. Um, I have loved it ever since. And I had her send me a clip when I was at this other camp last week because I said, it's time to learn these parts. So we've got it, and I've got some helpers, right? I've got a few, let's see, let me see, I don't know if Elizabeth wants to help, Kanda, uh, Mike, Danny, yes, come. So um, we're waltzing, so it's boom, bum, bum, boom, bum, bum, boom, bum, bum. So we're gonna start with the high part, soprano, although we're starting in a low key. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Um, he, and, and we'll use he this time. Um, so, he has the marvelous, he has the marvelous thing. Praise the Lord. So, soprano. He has the marvelous, he has the marvelous thing. Thank you. 
I realized that one dance around the room wasn't none for me, enough for me. I, I, had to, I, I, I had to shake something. So thank you and thank you. And pray for me as I catch my breath. Actually, let's all, let's, let's pray. Good and gracious and wonderful and amazing God. Marvelous God. Thank you for being marvelous. And thank you for placing your spirit in each one of these marvelous people. And bless this time, God. Bless my words. Bless our hearts and our ears. That together, even though I'm the one up here doing a lot of sharing, all of us might do our own reflecting and discerning and praying and thinking about our walk with you. A walk that now is about to take us into the world where we might bear witness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A reading from Deuteronomy 34. Really, according to this, according to Deuteronomy, at the end of that incredible journey from slavery into freedom, from slavery into responsibility, from slavery into a land of promise. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab. Here ends the reading. This is, and there's a lot more to this chapter, of course. Um, but it's an amazing passage uh, that in general, perplexes us a lot. If you read some of the verses that follow, you realize that there's lots of honorifics for Moses. There is a lot of due recognition of this leader that's been so important to the people of God. But at the same time, there is this poignant, tragic, hard-to-understand situation where he, he doesn't go into the promised land. He's on the edge, but he doesn't go in. And if you really, I mean, there's been, you know, generations, centuries of commentators and midrash specialists and people trying to make sense of this. And it's confusing. Um, and certainly some would say, well, he made this mistake. You know, he struck the rock instead of speaking, and so that's what he deserved. But if you think about it, that just, boy, that doesn't seem fair. And it also doesn't make a lot of sense because there's so much honoring him as well. And then just to give you my own very short commentary because there are a lot of other stories I want to look at tonight. 
I think people beheld, I mean, these, the, the writers of these books, the, the people beheld this tragedy of their leader, their crucial leader, not making it to that land, and they're trying to make sense of it, the way you and I might make sense of it right now, try, okay? But into that re rich understanding of understanding this, there is a Midrash tradition Generations of rabbis that lift up a little detail that's very precious to me tonight, and I want to share it with you. That fifth verse, the way my translation reads, says Moses died in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. The Hebrew is actually Al-Pi-Adonai, which means at the, at the mouth of the Almighty. And so they're taking that to mean at the mouth of God, at the command of God, the word of God, which is a reasonable interpretation. But there's a whole other tradition that says Moses died with God's kiss, with a final blessing, with a final piece of grace and appreciation in this crazy, absurd, poignant, happy, sad, both world that we live in. I want to lift up that tradition today and that image because today, as we get ready to step into our happy, sad, both world, and as I personally continue my own walk in a happy, sad, both landscape, I want to lift up and celebrate and bear witness to God's tender mercies. A kiss, an embrace, a hand on the shoulder. If you are a lover of classic novels, this scene of God's kiss might remind you of a really famous scene from a book by Dostoevsky called The Brothers Karamazov. There's a scene called The Grand Inquisitor. It's kind of a story within the whole novel, a story within a story told by one of the brothers. As you might know, Dostoevsky in this novel in particular grapples with all sorts of questions about the meaning of life and the existence of God and the meaning of discipleship and ethics. And there's just, it's just rich, 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 rich. And this scene in particular, the Grand Inquisitor scene, is one that my church is studying in Sunday school right now. We have a, you know, in the tradition of Mike Hegeman, uh, we, we have a couple of students from Princeton this summer, and one, uh, Jackie Rodriguez, is, is, is leading that study. Um, and she, oh my gosh, she was so excited to do this. It was her idea, and it reminded me of this piece. And just to summarize it briefly, um, in the story within the story, there is the imagined return of Jesus during the time of the Inquisition. You know, that time in the 1500s, actually the 1200s and the 1500s, um, when the church was really trying to make sure believe, people believed the right thing, and they were fierce and brutal in their questioning and in their punishment. People, people were killed if they were considered heretics. And in this imagined scene, Jesus returns and does what the Bible says he does. He heals and feeds, and he's with the poor. 
And this is upsetting to the leaders. And they bring him in and they charge him with heresy and they've decided that he will burn at the stake. But there is this moment of questioning. And you can see that the grand inquisitor, the top questioner, is incredibly frustrated because he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, you know, you, you messed up when you were in the wilderness. When, when Satan said, turn this stone into bread, that's what you should have done. People follow food. When Jesus said, you know, or, or when Satan said, um, you can have power all over the world, you should have taken it. When he said you could fall and he'd catch you, you should have done that. We would have no trouble now with people following you if you had done that. But you had to go and embrace freedom. You had to leave it up to people to decide. And a bunch of these people are deciding the wrong things. Because of what you did, I now have to do what I do. And Jesus is just silent for all of that. He's silent until finally he leans over and he gives the Grand Inquisitor a kiss. We don't know how much that changes the Inquisitor's mind, but we do know that the Grand Inquisitor opts to let Jesus go back into the alleys of the city he doesn't want to burn him at the stake. Okay. Life is amazing and it's beautiful, but the paths can be jagged and crooked. Along the way, and maybe especially in those crooked places, God offers tender mercies. God offers Jesus offers a kiss. I loved Jonathan's talk this morning, and it made me think of some of my own, uh, you know, most compelling experiences and encounters with Christ. And I've referenced some of that here, and I've referenced others more in other talks, not this week, but I want. I, I want to mention a couple. Like Jonathan, when I was a young adolescent, I had fair features and I had long hair. And like Jonathan, I was waiting a long time for that puberty train to come by. Um, the story, I, well, I'll, when I was, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a detail. I was 15 and in my ninth grade class, I was the shortest boy. And I've shared a story with my kids about uh, around this time I was a paper boy. I delivered the Des Moines Register and Tribune to folks in the neighborhood. And around Christmas time, you'd typically get Christmas tips and they'd be in an envelope often. You know, if they knew my name, they'd put my name. And there was one woman who put paper question mark. And, and I saw her and she said, I didn't know if you were a boy or a girl, you know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and, and my kids have assured me that I was just ahead of my time and all this non-binary stuff, you know, um, uh, and I appreciate that, but I, I mean, I was embarrassed at the time, you know, but I wasn't about to cut my hair, thank you very much. Um, um, 
But that was one among many other insecurities of a 15, 16 year old who went off to my, ver my own version of camp, this synod school event I've described to you. And there I, I, I was in this bath of acceptance and love, unconditional love, and I felt the embrace of Christ. That's how I saw it as a 15 year old. I think this is Jesus. Years later, my first semester in college was really brutal for me. That's a story I've shared in other talks and not so much here. Um, but the transition from Des Moines to an Ivy League school, uh, and it, it, that was not easy for me. And there's a lot of details there that, that, that kind of made it harder. But again, that was a, that spiritually, that was probably the most important spirit, um, semester for me. Because all these other things that I thought gave me worth, you know, awards and things from high school, like they were gone. And I had to check with myself and say, do I really believe this, this church stuff that says God, that Jesus loves me, this I know. Do I really know that? And I went to a big church for a while, and I went to a chapel for a while, and I went to this little church way down the street. It was about a mile walk. It's an African-American church in Princeton, New Jersey that had been started decades before by African-Americans who were tired of having to sit in the balcony at the big church. And in this little church, I was seen. I was invited to come back. And one Sunday morning, I felt the arm of somebody on my shoulder and there was nobody there. It was Jesus expressing his own tender mercy. And skip ahead a bunch of other years, I am being examined by the Presbytery of Boston on my worthiness to be a minister of the word and sacrament. And in general, the support was coming and I felt it, but there was, there was the peanut gallery there were a few folks there who weren't quite sure I believed the right thing and they were peppering me with questions and I was nervous and I was anxious and I swear I looked in the back of Hyde Park Sanctuary and I saw Jesus there just motioning me to come on over. So when life gets complicated, when life is hard, when the roads are jagged, when the roads are crooked, when life is happy, sad, both. Maybe that's just when we're paying more attention, but it is certainly a time when I've experienced the kiss of God, the embrace of Jesus, a hand of the Holy Spirit. I have a favorite movie scene. It's actually my favorite movie kiss scene, which is saying a lot because there are probably a billion movie kiss scenes. It's a movie from a number of years ago, and it might be kind of rough to watch, uh, um, so I'm not necessarily going to commend everybody to see it. Um, it's called Slumdog Millionaire. And uh, again, short version, short summary, three children orphaned who have to grow up on the streets of Mumbai. And you among other things, you see them grow up. And one, there's two boys and a girl. And one boy gets very much ensnared in the life of the leading gangster. 
and becomes one of the gangster's minions. Um, the girl, who grows up to be a very beautiful young woman, gets ensnared in that as well against her will. The gangster keeps her on a leash, metaphorically speaking. Um, and the other boy, the lead, our protagonist, um, he's, he's kind of doing other things and staying out of that life. But boy, he's, you can tell he's, he ha has fallen in love with this young woman and would love to rescue her. And at one point, she's, she almost escapes and runs off with him, but she's caught just before that can happen. And her punishment is this knife cut across her beautiful face so that for the rest of her life, she'll have this scar. Well, cut to the end of the movie, she actually does become free. And we're building up to this dramatic moment at the, at the train station where our protagonist is a young man and this woman as a scarred young, young woman are, are about to meet. And you can tell in their eyes, they love each other. You, you can tell we're gonna have a kiss. It's gonna be a big Bollywood kiss, you know that. You can see them coming and you know there's gonna be an embrace worthy of Burt Lancaster from here to eternity. You know, you just, it's, it's gonna, you're gonna get there, right? But he comes up to her and he sees her and he leans over and he gently kisses her scar. She, he, he kisses her where she's been wounded, where she's been broken. And I find that so beautiful. I find that so holy. I find that so sacred because I believe that's what God does. I believe that's what Jesus does. Now, I, that's not to say that a big smooch has its place every once in a while, godly or otherwise. I've got to tell you one more fourth church story, right? So let me tell you briefly um, about a wedding I once did. Although it's, it's, it feels funny to call it a wedding, it was a couple in their apartment with one witness. There's a whole story there, but the couple's name are Shorty and Pam. And uh, my fourth friends know who I'm talking about. And I can tell you Shorty and Pam love that I tell this story. Um, and there's more of a lead up to that, like why, why this wedding was gonna happen in their apartment. I actually was not planning for that to happen. I was planning to continue our wedding preparations and plans, older couple when they got married. Um, but I got there, they already had their wedding certificate, they were ready, and they had, <laughs> they had this friend there to be a witness. So I said, well, okay, you're technically already married, let's, let's say a blessing, let's have our own ceremony here and, and ask for God's blessing of this union, and we kinda, I do it, you know, I, I have a ceremony, I share some words, I say a prayer, I read scripture, we ex they, I have them exchange vows, 
and, and they're very excited. Yeah, I mean, Shorty is, is an excitable guy, and so is Pam, and Pam is a long-time smoker. She talks like this, right? And her name for me is Beanie Bopper because she likes the way I bounce when I play the piano, okay? Um, Shorty's a great singer, by the way. Um, so I come to the end of our short wedding ceremony, our time of blessing for this commitment that they made <laughs> in the city department already. Um, and I say, you may now, you may now kiss. And, and they give each other a little peck, a peck and Pam turns to me, but you, Beanie Bopper, I want to give you a kiss right now. And she just grabbed me and, ah. <laughs> with her scratchy chin, you know, just right there, right there. And that's a beautiful thing. I'm trying to speak poetically about tender mercies, but the big smooch has its place. Amen? Amen. Yeah, that, that was not enthusiastic, but I, but I know you're with me. Uh, <laughs> But to get back to something maybe a little more tender, uh, when uh, we have, Lorraine and I have these dear friends um, named Levon and Susan. They are part of my church, but most of the year they live in London because Levon is a, an amazing professional violinist and he has his own quartet and he gets Enough, he gets enough gigs in Europe to support himself over there. And, um, and they did, you know, they, he, has, he, he does incredibly well. And he's a, an amazing, amazing player. But when they're in this, they're in this she's American born. Susan is American born. And um, so they live in the States for well, a month or two a year, especially for a month in the summer. And when they're in the, in the States, they live in Hull on Nantasket Beach. Um, and they were very close to Lorraine. And, um, and we had been to their home and been on their beach. And as Lorraine was getting sicker and sicker in the summer, two years ago, uh, and Susan and Levon came back into town and uh, invited to their, us to their house as they always do. And Lorraine really wanted to go to Hull one more time. And she said, I, I want to put my toes in the ocean one more time. And there was a Sunday in September, uh, as it turns out, you know, a few days before she passed, when we were hoping maybe that could happen, but she was just, she was just too sick. So I called Levon and Susan because I knew they'd come to church that morning and just say, you know, we, you know we, we can't make it down there. But if you'd like, please come by the house. And by the way, Levon, if you feel like bringing your violin, you know, feel free. Um, I mean, I would, I would, I'll tell him that for church anyway, just because if he feels like it, we'll have him play. You know, just that's the way music goes in our place. Um, so he came over to the house, they came over to the house, and some of Lorraine's book club members were there. This is Sunday afternoon. And a couple of these physicians also know Reiki, so they were giving her Reiki, and just giving her moist cloths, because she was very, very warm. 
Um, and Levon came and played. And he plays classical Western pieces, of course, but he's, he's Armenian, so he also knows Armenian liturgical music. Jyotis had a lot of these other, this other wonderful minor scale. And oh my gosh, was it exquisite. I went around the house, I made sure all the windows and all the doors were open because I wanted the world to hear what he was doing, this tender mercy he was offering to my wife. A wonderful moment. And a couple weeks later, I, I shared this story with a class I was teaching at Andover Newton Seminary. Um, and that school and my students were wonderfully supportive um, and as I was going through this, but we still wanted to do, I wanted to do the course. But I shared this story and it turns out one of my students was from Hull and commuted to Newton from Hull. And uh, the next week, she came with this, this glass, this little jar, it's this clear planter with sand from Nantasket Beach and a few shells. I still have it. It was such a beautiful, simple, beautiful kiss on my scar. I want to go back to Brian Stevenson as we get ready to finish. This new hero of mine, or newly discovered hero of mine, this faithful, justice-loving, mercy-loving lawyer who has devoted his life to working with and defending the least of these and working for justice. He tells a story near the end of the book uh, which for me is, it's just one of many beautiful, beautiful stories. Um, the setup is that he um, had been working on several cases all the way to the Supreme Court where he was trying to say it was unconstitutional to sentence a teenager, a, somebody, a, a juvenile, to life without parole. In other words, to sentence them to die in prison. Um, and he won that. He won it at the Supreme Court level. And then there was the process of kind of taking that victory at the Supreme Court level and going to specific cases. And he knew one case where a man had been, had been jailed as a teenager under some really shaky grounds. But he had been in prison for 50 years. And he went to the courtroom. I think this is in Alabama, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and once he was there with the case, after all these years of going to the Supreme Court, everybody there, all the press there, all the judges there, I think it was a panel, knew that yes, this is what had to happen, and it happened. And he says something that never happens in court happened. Everybody was just perfectly silent. And of really realizing the profundity of what had a wrong that was being righted. But then eventually people left, and Mr. Stevenson hung around, just kind of, whew, you know, breathing, I would say, just breathing. And there was this older woman there, an older African-American woman with wearing what he describes as a church hat, you know, nice Easter Sunday hat. And he had seen her at court many times, but he didn't realize who, he was who she was connected to. 
So he, he, went up to, he went up to her just to introduce himself and say, are you related to somebody? He said, no, and she, and, and, and she said, I can't stand up right now, but if you lean over, I'll give you a hug. And he leans over and gets a hug, and he enjoys that, and he sits down. And he asks, so who are you related to? And she says, nobody. I just come here to help people. This is a place full of pain, so people need plenty of help around here. She went on to say, my 16-year-old son was murdered 15 years ago. I loved him more than life itself. I came to this courtroom at the hearing for the boys that killed him. They were sent to jail, and I thought that would make me feel better, but it didn't. I actually felt worse. And there was a woman here in the chairs who came next to me, and she let me lean on her. And I cried for two hours. And Brian Stevenson is just listening to all this and seeing her with great, great respect. He said, I'm so sorry about your grandson. And the woman went on to say, well, you never fully recover, but you carry on. You carry on. I didn't know what to do with myself after those trials, so about a year later I started coming down here. I don't really know why. I guess I just felt like maybe I could be someone. You know, that somebody, be someone that somebody hurting could lean on. There's so much grief. There's so much violence. I don't know. It's a lot of pain. I decided that I was supposed to be here to catch some of the stones people cast at each other. They went on to talk about the case. And she told Brian Stevenson, you done good today. I was so happy when that judge said that man was going home. It gave me goosebumps. Fifty years in prison. Now you keep this up, mister, and you're going to end up like me, singing some sad songs. Ain't no way to do what we do and not learn how to appreciate a good sorrow song. I've been singing sad songs my whole life. Had to. When you catch stones, even happy songs can make you sad. But you keep singing. Your songs will make you strong. They might even make you happy. People were buzzing around the corridors. And Brian Stevenson finally said, well, you're very good at what you do. I feel much better. And she slapped his arm and said, oh, don't you try to charm me, young man. You felt just fine before you saw me. The men are going home and you were fine walking around here. I just do what I do, nothing more. And he started to get up and she said, oh, wait. And she reached into her bag and she got a peppermint candy. And she gave it to him. He writes, the gesture made me happy in a way that I can't fully explain. Kisses on the cheek. 
hand on the shoulder, an embrace. Candy. A jar of sand. I want to tell you one other. I want to tell you what hooked me with Mr. Stevenson. As I mentioned this before, I, I heard him speak at my niece's graduation just a couple months ago at Rhode Island School of Design. And sitting next to me um, was my sister and her husband and, and my oldest daughter, Lizzie. And Stevenson began his talk with this simple short story. It's in the book as well. And he remembered that as a boy, his grandmother would call him over and give him a big hug. And then she'd say, Brian, can you feel this hug? And if he said yes, she'd let him go. If he said no, she would squeeze him harder. And he says he would usually say no. Just get more and more of a hug. And he said, my grandma told me that she wanted to make sure that no matter where I was, no matter what was going on, I could feel her hug. And he went on to make some other points, but my daughter was, was crying. She leaned on me and she said, that's, that's how I feel mommy's hug. We carry these tender mercies. We carry them. They can carry us through life with its jagged places and its crooked roads. And I hope you can see all the pieces of godly presence that are emerging. A hug, a kiss, a blessing, a hand on a shoulder. If we're creative, maybe a song, a sad song, a happy song, a bowl of sand, a piece of peppermint candy, tender mercies at the jagged and hard parts of life. And here's, here's the exciting part. We can be a part of it. Not just receiving it, that for sure. But we, we can be, like Mother Teresa says, we can be the fingers and hands of the Lord. Remember the yo-yo ma wave? Remember how we can be in sync with that to make beautiful music? Here's the one word answer for how we get in sync with it. We love. We love. We love with small gestures and big scratchy chin gestures. We love with tender mercies. Check out this verse. This is from 1 John. I love this. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. God's love is perfected in us when we love. Let me say that again. God's love is perfected in us when we love. I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, I, I think of God's love as fairly perfect from the get-go. Call me crazy. I mean, it's God loving, 
I mean, that's pretty perfect. And this piece of scripture is saying it can be still more perfect when we love each other, when we're kind to each other. This is my very last story. I promise. Um, and it involves my phone. And it involves that Labor Day weekend two years ago. It's the one I described for you a couple days ago where there was just so much going on. It was kind of a big, a big effort by Lorraine where we were hosting people and we moved one daughter into a, an apartment in Boston and moved our youngest daughter back to school in Middletown, Connecticut. I, I know I, I mentioned that in passing. But let me focus in on a detail of that, okay? After we successfully moved all of Grace's boxes up into her room, it was time to say goodbye. We were out in front of the dorm, and Lorraine had her oxygen tank, and a bit weary, of course, but gave, gave, her, gave her this, gave her a hug. And um, she and I both had these new phones. Um, I, don't, I don't even know what number Apple this is, but it was, I mean, I had, we both had the same model before, and they were both running out. I mean, they just weren't working well, and a friend of a friend who works at the Apple store helped us, you know, get replacement phones without taking a lot of our time because we were in the hospital so much. And we said, we just, we want a phone the same size, whatever, just keep it simple. And they got us these phones, which were the same size, but of course had more power and more memory and all sorts of these things that I still don't know how to use. Right? And one of the things is that you take your camera, there's this option to do a live photo. You guys know what this is? All right. You know, you, you take a picture and, and then later on you can touch the picture and it's, it's essentially, a, I guess, a two-second video and it kind of moves, you know? Ooh, you know, whatever. It, it reminds me of the portraits in the Harry Potter movies, you know, where the figures are there and they go, it's just, it's just this kind of funny, cool thing. Well, I didn't know it, but I had, I had my camera, my phone camera on the live photo function. So I took this picture of, of Gracie and Lorraine hugging. Well, later on, I discovered it was this you know, live photo, so I could hold my thumb on the photo and there would be this movement. Not a lot, but just they hugged. You just see, you know, for two seconds, a little bit of movement. And that was lovely. All these little live photos I took by accident kind of gave me little snippets of those days, which became more and more precious after Lorraine passed. And I'll confess to you, there were many times that fall when I would just look at those photos again. And I'd look at them again. And I looked at them again. And then one day, a couple months later, I discovered that it really is a short video. And if you have the buttons on a certain way, there's sound. This may not be a surprise to the young folk. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it had that feature. And said, oh, it's got sound. And I just heard this little scratch or something. And I'd, I'd, I'd hold it, and she'd move, and it, this little sound. What is that? And then I watched it and I listened. 
and I realized what it was. It was Lorraine hugging her and then bobbing her head and going, She was kissing her, like right here on her neck. Probably with a pretty good awareness that she would not get to take a child and drop them off in college again. Probably with a pretty good awareness that the next days were going to feel jagged and crooked for her children and for her husband. And there she offered this exquisite and tender mercy. I am about to enter a new chapter. Actually, I have entered a new chapter of my life where the landscape feels very, very different than it was before in all kinds of ways the most important of which is that Lorraine's not with me in the same way. There are other things too, like an empty nest, other things like the school, one of the schools where I used to teach merged with Yale, so I don't get to be a part of that community in the same way. Um, just changes, it's just very, very different. And I'm trying to be patient with myself. But I give thanks. And I bear witness that God provides tender mercies along the way. And that I get to be a part of that. And for all of us, we are now on the cusp of going back into that world, which can always be jagged and crooked, and these days has a lot of fierce divisiveness in it. We know that. I don't know for sure that it's worse than ever. Whether it is or whether it isn't, we know at the very least it's happy, sad both. But we go out there bearing witness to this God, to this Jesus, to this Holy Spirit that's ready to kiss us on our scars, that's ready to embrace, give us a big smooch and move mountains when you need that, but in all kinds of ways offer tender mercies. And we get to be a part of that. We get to catch stones with that woman in the courthouse down in Alabama. We get to offer jars of sand if people need a little bit of Winnipesaukee Beach or Nantasket Beach or Marin County Beach, right? If they even have a beach there. We get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of the wave we get to receive and pass on beautiful music. And for that, I give thanks. And with my Father, I say with you, Alleluia, Amen. Amen.